this is Christmas tide. Christmas is a season and not just a day, and it's a season that we celebrate or the church has celebrated uh, from um, Christmas Eve up to uh, through Epiphany to the baptism of our Lord. It lasts about 20 days. And so we are starting a new series uh, this week that I'm calling Christmas in Matthew. And as we do so, we're beginning with the genealogy. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. As you do that, let me ask you, have you ever read the book? Uh, it's J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, it's, a, it's a really good book. It's a fascinating book. He calls it in his introduction a family memoir, and it's a very colorful one. He writes at the very end of the introduction, nearly every person you will read about is deeply flawed. Some have tried to murder other people, and a few were successful. Some have abused their children physically or emotionally. Many abused and still abuse drugs. But I love these people. Even those to whom I avoid speaking for my own sanity. And if I leave you with the impression that there are bad people in my life, then I'm sorry, both to you and to the people I've so portrayed. For there are no villains in this story. It's just a ragtag band of hillbillies struggling to find their way. I knew that I could relate to J.D. Vance when he referred to his grandparents who raised him as Memma and Papa, because that's what I called my grandparents. And according to J.D. Vance, only hillbillies from Appalachia call their grandparents Memma and Papa. But this story is incredibly relatable uh, to me in that way. There are things that may be a little outlandish, though, like great uncles chasing around people with switchblades, including him. Who was, he was intervened by uh, grandma. And then there's another uncle who, um, who because someone uh, made a joking um, remark about his mom, uh, ripped the delivery person out of a truck, uh, beat him unconscious, and then took a saw blade to him. Then there was the grandmother. The grandmother who brought, uh, took a shotgun out when she saw um, two men trying to steal one of her cows. She also taught J.D. Vance how to throw a sucker punch. It's a colorful group of people, but it's also, I think, a relatable group of people because we are coming out of Christmas. Christmas is the time where you obligatorily or not spend with your family. Uh, and lots of us have spent time with our families. I did not, but many of us spend time with our families. And one of the things that we realize during Christmas, I think, that becomes more acute is that families can be hard and broken, that every family is full of some misfits, and maybe you feel like you don't fit into your family. Maybe you come out and you're like, well, who are these people? And how am I related to them? Uh, maybe you feel like that just generally in the world. Well, if you do, uh, I think that when we look at Jesus' family, 
his family tree, his genealogy, we can derive some comfort from it. And we can see that it's pretty relatable as well. That Jesus can relate to us, that he relates to you and to me. But I do realize that turning to a genealogy the first Sunday after Christmas can feel a bit like getting socks for Christmas. It's like, ah, they're maybe necessary, but uh, is it a gift I really want? I mean, socks for Christmas? But you know, some socks are really nice. And some socks are really surprising. And in this gift, this gift of this genealogy, I think that we'll find some surprising things for us as well. Because this genealogy, well, it tells us about God. And it tells us about His grace. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we open up your word, the New Testament, which begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, a portion of scripture that many of us um, skip over, perhaps yawn through, we ask that you would show us why in your good, gracious pleasure and purposes, you have opened your New Testament, a book that proclaims good news with this genealogy, and you would proclaim good news to us in and through it. It's in Jesus' name that I do ask these things. Amen. Well, in my seminary training, we had to take a couple counseling courses. One of those counseling courses had a major project. It was the biggest project in the course, and it was maybe the only project in the course that I remember at least, and that is that we had to construct a genogram. Do you know what a genogram is? A genogram is basically a family tree, but instead of being just a family tree, it's also a family tree that shows relationships and relational dynamics. It shows um, when there's codependency and enmeshment and addictions and elopements and affairs and abuse. And you go through and you're looking at this genogram, this family tree, and you see all these patterns. It was a very weighty project, not just because it weighed a lot on our final grade, but also because our professor warned us, like, when you go and interview people in your family, you are going to find some things. Every year, students find out that there are relatives that they didn't know existed, sometimes siblings. They find out about marriages that they didn't know happened. They, they find out um, about affairs that they didn't know had happened. And every year, this weight is something that, that reveals something about your family, and in so doing, reveals something about yourself. Every year, students find that there are surprises, and these surprises bring about revelations. When we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, what we find is that it is marked by surprises. And these surprises reveal something. They reveal something about who God is. They reveal something about how his family is a family marked by grace, 
Grace that is wide and deep and sure. First, the genealogy of Jesus Christ shows us that God's family is a family that is marked, that God is a God of grace and that his grace is wide. Anyone who's reading through this genealogy the first time, if you have read through it with an ancient mindset, then the thing that will stick out to you the most is that Matthew mentions four women before he gets to Mary. He mentions Tamar, verse 3, Rahab, verse 5, Ruth, verse 5, and Bathsheba, verse 6. Now, this is startling. If you look through the genealogies of the Old Testament, you will see that people can tell genealogies and did tell genealogies all the time without women. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And they did that because they just didn't think the women were all that important to the story. And so if you were going to mention women in an ancient patriarchal society and, and include them in a genealogy, then you want to make sure that you do so in a way that increases the purity or the pedigree of the line, which is what is so surprising about this genealogy. You see, all four of these women have something in common. They are all more or less outsiders when it comes to the people of Israel. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Jerahite. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba was of Hittite ancestry. In other words, these were what in Matthew's reader's view, in Matthew's view, these are people who would have been more or less Gentiles. And that is shocking. Because what it means is this, that Jesus, if I can put it this way, he comes from a mixed-race family. And that might not sound very striking to us today, but I want you to take yourself back to the 1960s in the South where I grew up. And then think about that. And then I want you to think that if you were in Judaism in the first century, that is even more shocking and scandalous. I mean, this is the kind of thing that if you were telling a genealogy and you were trying to show the purity and the pedigree of somebody and their line, these are the things, the details that you leave off. So here's the question, why does Matthew include them? Because that's the point. Matthew is trying to show us that God's grace is wide and expansive and that his family is inclusive and it includes not only Jews but also Gentiles, that people who society overlooks and would marginalize like women. Matthew centers because God centers in his storyline. I was reminded of this fact recently when I was traveling up to Paso um, with my family on a little vacation. Pam and I, one of the things that we love to do on vacation is we love the opportunity to go worship at different churches. I hope and encourage you to do that. Um, vacations are a time to take off work, not worship. Go worship. Go see what God is doing in other places. We were there at this church in and Paso, and I sat down, and immediately I realized that I was going to stick out. 
that I did stick out. Uh, because as I sat there and I'm waiting for the service to start, first I see a very um, uh, rather rotund, large fellow come in, and he had on a biker jacket that said Harley on the back with skulls, and he had a do-rag. And then the next person came in, and they had, they had a leather vest on that was sleeveless. And the, the whole row was full of these guys who I guess were going maybe biking after this or something. And they all had like do-rags and leather jackets, and there were some sleeved, and there was some not. And then there's me with, I'm sure, like a pair of colorful chinos and a button-down on. And I'm thinking, man, God's family is big and wide and inclusive. And it's full of people who don't look like me. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, as I was sitting there, it reminded me of a Toby Keith song. I know much of you are big Toby Keith fans, like I am. And uh, it reminded me of that song, I Love This Bar. You know that song? Of course you do. Toby Keith sings, we got winners, we got losers, chain smokers and boozers. We got yuppies. We got bikers. We got thirsty hitchhikers. And the girls next door dress up like movie stars. Mm, 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 I love this bar. I love this bar. It's my kind of place. Just walking through the front door puts a big smile on my face. It ain't too far. Come as you are. I love this bar. That's like the family of Jesus. It's full of all kinds of people. Because God's grace is wide and expansive and inclusive. That's what Jesus' family is like. I realize that it's Christmas time, and many of us at Christmas, we visited our families, or our families visited us, and maybe we felt like outsiders. Or maybe we didn't visit our families because we felt like outsiders. Maybe we feel like we don't fit in, like we are misfits, the black sheep, marginalized. I want you to know that Jesus' family is full of misfits and the marginalized and black sheep. Maybe you feel like that when you come to church. You think, well, I didn't grow up religious, and I don't even know the handshake, and I don't know, I don't know the social cues, and I'm not sure how to act, and could this people really be my people? God's grace is wide and expansive and inclusive, and so yes, yes, you have a place here too. And so do others. See, if this is true, that God's grace is wide and big and expansive, and if he includes the very people that we might, we might think that he would never include, that we might write off, what this means is that you can't write anyone off. You can't write any of your friends off. You can't write any of your neighbors off. You can't write any of your family off. You can't say, well, they're just not the kind of people who would go to church. They're just not the kind of people who are religious. They, they just, they're just not into those kinds of things. They're, they're just not traditional like I am. No, 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 no. 
God's grace is wide and big and expansive and inclusive. So don't write anybody off, including yourself. That's the first thing that Jesus' genealogy teaches us about God's grace. The second thing that it teaches us is that God's grace is deep. At least three of these women, when you dig a little further, you realize that their lives are associated with scandal. In verse 3, we read of Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Do you know that story? Tamar's story. It's a tragic story. Tamar was married to a man named Ur. He was a wicked man and he died. In that world, if your husband died because you were left all on your own as a woman and destitute, then your brother-in-law had to marry you. And so Onan marries Tamar. He also was a wicked man and he died. Tamar was widowed twice over. Her father-in-law, Judah, he thought that it was her fault. And so he would not give his third son to her. So she was left desperate and destitute. So left desperate and destitute, here's what she did. Later in life, she found Judah. She disguised herself as a prostitute. She got his services. She carried his two children. They're the ones mentioned here. You notice, that, you notice that throughout this genealogy and lineage, we're told of usually one child. But here we're told of two. Why? Because Matthew is drawing our attention to the scandal. It's a scandalous story. Or then what about, what about Rahab? Verse 4 we're reminded of Rahab. Do you know what she did for a profession? Rahab was a prostitute. Now, if you were a prostitute in that day, just like if you were a prostitute in this day, it means that there is a long and deep and sad and tragic story behind that. But that doesn't make it any less embarrassing or scandalous when you're sitting around the Christmas table. Joshua tells us Rahab had a family. Uh, could you imagine? So what's, what's Rahab up to these days? Do, do you think that her family said, well, oh, yeah, she's, she's doing great. She's a prostitute. We're so proud. No, it's scandalous. And then the most scandalous story of them all in verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew doesn't use her name, but we know her name, Bathsheba. And perhaps you know the story. David is the king, the most powerful man in the whole land, and he uses his power. He uses his power to force himself onto Bathsheba. Now, I want you to listen to the words again. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
Why put it like that by the wife of Uriah? Because the genealogy is drawing out the fact that Solomon was not a legitimate son. He's what we would call, in a very technical sense, a bastard child. That's Jesus' lineage. That's Jesus' family tree. This is who Jesus' people are. Why in the world would you put this in a genealogy? Why not cover it up? I mean, these, these, these are family secrets. These are the kind of secrets that come out when you, when you, do a, a gene, uh, when you research for a genogram in your, in your counseling class in seminary. These are not the kind of things that you publicize, and yet Matthew publicizes them. Why? Because God's grace is deep. Because God not only gives non-Israelite Gentile women a prominent place in his family, but he also includes Jewish and Gentile sinners like Judah and like David. And Matthew refuses to whitewash this family because, because these are the people that Jesus descended from, and this is the world that he descended into to save. You see, could it be any other way? Would there be any other family that wasn't full of sinners? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are under the power of sin. And this is the very reason that he came. Here is a trustworthy statement that is worthy of full acceptance. Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Sinners like the ones in his family tree. That's why he came. Man, we have this sense that that because we are sinners, we have to stay away from Jesus. No, don't you see that your sin is the thing that, that attracts him to you? Not because he loves sin, because he knows how he can rescue you from it. And so he pursues you in your sin. And he pursues me in my sin. So that he might forgive us and heal us and save us. Jesus is not ashamed to identify with David and Judah and me and you. He said, those are my people. He puts us in his family tree so that we might know that we might know that, that we are his and he is not ashamed, as the author of Hebrews says, to call us brothers and us sisters. He loves us. So that means that whoever you are, no matter what you've done, those things that keep you up at night, those things over which you feel a deep amount of shame that you thought if this was ever publicized, everyone would turn and run, including perhaps God. I want you to know that that's a lie. I want you to know that your sins have been publicized. They were publicized on Calvary. And there, there, 
the full weight and extent of your sin and my sin was made public. And there God judged it for you and for me to set us free. Because his grace is deep. God's grace is wide. God's grace is deep. And then the, second thing, or the third thing that this genealogy teaches us is that God's grace is sure. The genealogy opens in chapter 1, verse 1, by speaking of Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he begins the list uh, in verse 2 with Abraham, and then again in verse 6 with David. I mean, David and Abraham, they frame this whole genealogy. In fact, verse 17 summarizes, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. It's David and Abraham that framed this whole thing. Why is Matthew framing the whole genealogy on David and Abraham? Because the two great covenant promises in the Old Testament, the greatest covenant promises were to David and to Abraham. To David, God said, I am going to give you a dynasty, a family. And from that family is going to come a son. And he's going to sit on a throne and rule. And that rule is going to be forever. You see, David and the promise to David was the hope of Israel. But long before that, God had made a promise to Abraham. God said, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And in you and in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, the promise to David was the, or the promise to Abraham was the hope for the nations. And what God is saying through this genealogy is that his grace is sure because he fulfills his promises. This is a God who keeps his promises and he keeps his promises in spite of how things appear. There are a couple more surprises in this genealogy. In verse 7, we read that Abinadab was the father of Asaph. Verse 8, Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. But here's the thing. Asaph, uh, Asaph wasn't the father of Jehoshaphat. Asaph was a psalmist. Like, he wrote a lot of the psalms. Asaph was one who led the people of God in spiritual renewal in the temple. So why on the world did Matthew say that, that Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat? It wasn't Asaph, it was Asa. And then in, in verse 10, it says that Manasseh was the father of Amos. And Amos was the father of Josiah. But Amos wasn't the father of Josiah. Amos wasn't a king. You, you know your Bible? You, you memorize the books of the Bible? When you memorize the books of the Bible, you get to a name, Amos. Amos was a prophet. He was one of the minor prophets. In fact, he was the prophet who proclaimed most how the people of God were socially corrupt and they needed moral renewal at a societal level. Social justice, if you will. And if you don't like that term, then call it corporate righteousness. But that's what the prophet of Amos is all about. 
So what is going on here? Did Matthew fail third grade? Did he just forget the names of Israelite kings and get confused and start confusing prophets with kings? No. I think Matthew is being very intentional. And I think that he is reminding us of how this history went. You see, notice where he ends this section. Verse 11, Josiah was the father of Jeroboam and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So Matthew is telling a long, downward, slow, downward spiral of history where Israel was in deeper and deeper and deeper with their sin. And he replaces the name Asa with Asaph to remind us that Israel was in deep need of spiritual renewal. And he replaces the name uh, Amon with Amos to remind us that Israel was in deep need of societal reform. That they needed a renewal in their love of God, Asaph, and their love of neighbor, Amos. The two great commandments. And that this led ultimately to exile, where Israel was judged and they were deported. Israel was in a bad way, and yet, here's the point Israel's bad way did not stop God from keeping his promises or fulfilling his plan. His grace is sure. Some of you are in a bad way. You've done things in life that you just can't take back. You can't get back. Some of you through sin have lost jobs, career opportunities that you'll never be able to get back. Some of you have lost savings, inheritance, money that you'll never be able to get back or climb out of. Some of you have, through sin, had children. Some of you have entered marriages because of sin. Some of you have relationships that have been cut off and seem irreparable. What Matthew's genealogy wants you to know is that your sin and my sin are no match for God's grace. And that it doesn't matter what we have done or how bad it is or how irreparable it seems. God can still keep his promises. And God can still work to use you in and through whatever situation. Your mess and your bad decisions and my mess and my bad decisions have gotten us into. Because his grace is sure. His grace is sure. See, your sin and my sin are no match for God's sovereignty. And so he, he can fulfill his promise in spite of how things appear. But he will also fulfill his promise in his own way. The next surprise that we find in this genealogy comes in verse 17 where Matthew tells us that from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ are 14 generations. 
But if you know how to count and you count those generations, you'll see that Matthew only lists 13. So he must have failed third grade because he can't even do math. But is that what's going on? Or maybe Matthew's intentionally not adding things up correctly because he wants us to know that God fulfills his promise not according to our calculations, but God's. That in the end, the math works out because God keeps his promises and God fulfills his promises. Which brings us to the greatest surprise of all, verse 16. Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. You know, there's a pattern in this genealogy. And A begot B, and B begot C, and C begot D. There might be a break to that pattern that says, and A begot B by X, and B begot C by X. But here in verse 16, the pattern is totally broken. Matthew does this job of chasing a, a tracing a genealogy all the way down through these fathers, and yet, in the end, Joseph, the husband of Mary, does not beget anybody of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Which is to remind us that when God fulfills his promise, he does so through miracle. Which means it doesn't depend on qualifications on the ground or conditions on the ground because the word leads the gap. Or as they say in the black church, God makes a way out of no way. That's how God works. That's how grace works. And so anybody, God's family comes into existence and is sustained by miracle. That's what this genealogy reminds us from the very beginning when Abraham and Sarah were infertile. And yet through miracle, God provides a child. And infertility all the way throughout mark this family. And yet God through miracle provides a child. And then sin interrupts and we think, no way, this family is not going to go forward. And then God through miracle provides a child. And then exile interrupts. And then God through miracle provides a child until we get to the climax where God provides a child through miracle, through a virgin birth to say that this family is sustained and carries on by miracle because that's how God's grace works. When I was younger, I studied history. When I studied history, the way that we told history was through great empires. It was, the, it was the Assyrians. It was the Egyptians and then the Assyrians. And it was the Greeks and then it was the Romans. And then it was Charlemagne and Western civilization. And then it was the British Empire and the Spanish Empire and their conquest. And then it was, and then it was America. When God tells history, the way he sees history moving forward is not through great people doing great things, powerful people doing powerful things. The way that he sees history moving forward is through promise and fulfillment and it's faith in that promise of God to come and intervene and provide 
miracle. What does that mean for us? It means that God makes a way out of no way, and that includes you. If you are a Christian, it's because God made a miracle. If you are not a Christian, you can be a Christian. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your intellect. It doesn't matter your history, your social standing, or anything else. What matters is God fulfills his promise by grace, and grace comes through miracle. And so you too can be born. His child brought into his family. Not by human decision or a husband's will but by the Spirit's miraculous power, the same power that brought Jesus Christ, the Savior, into the world. So I want to invite you into this family, Jesus' family of ragtag misfits, misfits who are deeply loved. I want to invite you into this family, this family that's full of black sheep who've been consecrated, washed white, by the blood of our Savior. One of my favorite authors, I won't apologize for speaking of her again, is Marilyn Robinson. In her book, Home, she has this lovely little passage that talks about the home that uh, two of the characters, uh, main characters in her books, Glory and Jack, grew up in. She writes, how to announce the return of comfort and well-being except by cooking something fragrant. Anybody ring a bell from the last weekend? That's what her mother always did. That is Glory's mother. After every calamity of any significance, she would fill the atmosphere of the house with the smell of cinnamon rolls or brownies or with chicken and dumplings. And it would mean this house has a soul that loves us all no matter what. And it would mean peace if they had fought and amnesty if they had been in trouble. It had meant you can come down to dinner now and no one will say anything to bother you unless, of course, you've forgotten to wash your hands. And her father, who was a Presbyterian minister, would offer grace. Inevitable with minor variations, thanking the Lord for all the wonderful faces he saw around the table. The book Home is about two of this Presbyterian minister's children, Glory and Jack, coming home. Glory's life was not glorious. She had had a long-standing affair, thinking that the man would leave his family. He never did. She is left alone, come home to tend her aging, widowed father. Jack, her brother is the black sheep of the family. He had a child when he was young. The child died. He went away. He became a drunk. He was imprisoned. Then he got married to a black woman. Her father was also a minister and didn't approve of the marriage. He went back home to see, could I find a place here? Especially since his dad, the Presbyterian minister, was friendly with some aspects of the civil rights movement. And Jack and Glory were there feeling like they were misfits and looking for 
a home and wondering if they were ever going to find one. But this passage reminds us that in the midst of all of that and all the uncertainty and all the weight and all the sin, that there was a deep undercurrent of grace. In spite of all the weight and all the sin and the misfits and the sense of belonging, in Matthew's genealogy, there's this deep undercurrent of grace. An undercurrent of grace in, in the book Home that's represented by a meal and a father's prayer, giving thanks for the faces around the table, no matter who they are or what they had done. Well, God now invites us to a meal. And he delights in and gives thanks for every face around the table, no matter who you are or what you have done. No matter how much you feel a part of the family or not, no matter how much you feel like a black sheep or not, God delights in you. That's what Matthew's genealogy teaches us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's prepare to come to the table.